This podcast contains potentially sensitive topics. Listener discretion is advised. This was when I was 22. I'd gotten um, an internship at a homeless shelter in Chicago. Forty women staying in this particular shelter. What would happen when I started to clean alongside them? Is of course, inevitably, they started to share with me. So months, you know, I don't remember, t- you know, what time. I don't recall how many months it had been that I was cleaning alongside them, where I started to notice a pattern of a bus that would pull up in front of the shelter. All these people would get out of the bus and they would come behind in the kitchen and start making food. And it was, you know, the crew that was volunteered from like a church out in the suburbs that would drive in. A lot of times I would see like people flirting with one another because it was like a, a singles group that would come and prepare the food. And all these people are coming in. We're cleaning this, this building. I'm talking to all these women. And one of them looked at me one day and they just said, do you have any idea what it feels like? To see people being bussed in every day to make food for you. I grew up in this city, in this like square block radius, my whole life. Never once have I been asked to be a part of something. Never once have I been asked to like offer myself to volunteer on behalf of my community. Like, do you have any idea what that feels like? And that was it for me. That changed, I mean, that changed the trajectory of my life. I'm Rex Holbein, and welcome to You Know Me Now, a podcast conversation that strives to amplify the unheard voices in our community. In these episodes, I want to remind all of our listeners that the folks who share here do so with a great deal of vulnerability and courage. They share a common hope that by giving all of us a window into their world, they're opening an increased level of awareness, understanding, and perhaps most importantly, a connection within our own community. When responding to complex societal issues, we are all familiar with the shortcomings of treating symptoms rather than causes. Even so, despite knowing this, we also all know how easy it is to go down that path. When an issue is screaming at us, any issue, our knee-jerk reaction is to just make it go away, to make it stop. When the city of Seattle puts up chain-link fencing to keep the homeless out from under freeways and bridges, it is addressing a symptom, the unsightliness of encampments. The fences are meant to make it go away. And we, as a community, passively allow it to happen because in the moment, It feels better to not see what is unsightly. It is literally out of sight, out of mind for us. However, for the homeless, they are still homeless, still looking for a place to sleep and shelter. So how do we shift our focus to successfully addressing root issues rather than symptoms? How do we get past giving in to the knee-jerk responses? We begin by understanding that For the most part, the symptoms of homelessness are what the housed community feels and are impacted by, and the root causes are what the unhoused community feels and are impacted by. When we respond to symptoms, 
we need to know that we are responding to our own needs rather than the needs of those struggling. It is an important distinction, an important and necessary shift. When we act compassionately and intentionally with this knowledge, we open ourselves to the uncertainty, to the uncomfortableness of homelessness, and beautifully begin our own journey of addressing the root causes of others struggling. Today I have the sincere pleasure of talking with Sparrow Edder Arlson. Sparrow has been living with intention towards her unhoused neighbors for the last 21 years. She is a co-founder of the Green Bean Coffee Shop, co-founder of Aurora Commons and its She Clinic, the acronym She standing for Safe, Healthy, and Empowered, and the founder of Sacred Streets. Sparrow is now the Seattle Planning Specialist at King County Regional Homelessness Authority. I started my conversation with Sparrow by asking her to share a bit about her childhood. And with that, let's begin. You know, the first thing that comes to mind for me, Rex, is that I had a different name at that point in my life. My birth name was Lisa. I changed my name to Sparrow when I turned 40. And as I sit here and and check in with little Lisa, um, I was living in St. Louis, Missouri, in a part of St. Louis uh, that uh, is called University City, right down the street from Washington University, a very diverse area. So um, my parents were curious folks, so we always had people at our house. I was listening to adult conversations uh, that were fueled with curiosity and kindness um, and an openness. Little Lisa would go outside, play outside a lot, put on plays. Um, overall, a pretty, pretty lovely, lovely childhood. Yeah. Yeah. You felt, sounds like you felt very loved and, I did. I and felt, allowed to explore how you I want. did. Yeah. Loved and seen, valued. Um, I had the means to um, work out um, different identities by trying out different sports and, um, you know, dance, et cetera. So I feel, I feel, yeah, really grateful that I, and, and I don't take that lightly, you know, that I had um, a, a safe place of expression and, and care. Um, but little Lisa at five definitely felt safe and secure. Um, of course, like, like most children, um, you know, I had a, a, a loss of innocence at some point in my life, but that was certainly not but at we're five. Get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. That was not at five. Five was, yeah. was a sweet and tender, tender time in my life. A lot of the times when I get to talk to people, people have had traumatic childhoods, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, I'm I'm always curious to know hmm. like how you lived as growing up. How did it inform now? And mm-hmm. and so it's easy to connect a dot, like to say, "Wow, Lisa had this unbelievably beautiful childhood," and it's a direct link to hmm. you know like this hmm. wonderful, beautiful humanitarian work that you do now. Mm-hmm. And is that a is that a fair? And I don't want to I want to be careful. Stop me if I'm jumping too far ahead. But no. Um... Yeah, it's interesting. Of course, I mean, of course, through the years, Rex, I'm sure you get this as well. Like living into this world the way that I've lived, chosen to live into this world, right? Through like birthing a number of different nonprofits that have been alongside my unhoused neighbors. That's always been a question of like, why? It's really hard for me to answer that question. I mean, tears always come because it's 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 something I can't 
I can't totally answer other than like my shared humanity, like the ways that I have felt seen, like seen Mm. the lived out experience of being alongside my unhoused neighbors, the realness of which they have to approach this life, the shared need, the way that they care for one another, the fabric of care. I've, I feel more myself when I'm with human beings that don't have the privilege of hiding their shit behind four walls. The ways that I was taught about about faith and religion never matched up to what was within my soul. And so, like, if you were to ask my sister about our childhood, she would say a very different experience than I than I had of my childhood because I've just I've always been a mystic. I've never taken what's been told to me and and had it I, I don't process information in the same way that didn't, many didn't people come process back it. Out the same way it went in. Yeah. You, you, like you I came in and you and I, turned it and over. I turned and I turned it around and I, I I mean I can't even put words to that, right? Because that's yeah. just the way that I've been wired. Was it was it just you growing and moving one step forward into your own mystic kind of spiritual connection with the world, or were you even yet that connected to it? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I, I, I was really connected to it, but in a way and in a sense that that just, I mean, we all feel lonely, right? Like we all have a a, a sense of being alone. But I think I never felt like alone. I just felt lonely. Like I didn't feel like I had, I I didn't feel like there was any constructs of which I could be like understood. We can, we always relate to these moments. I I think, at least I do Mm. like, like, okay, I listening to what you just said and then internalizing it, comparing it to my journey. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I feel like your words are similar in a sense that I don't, I wish I could say I was a mystic and I wish I could say those beautiful things like that. But I do I do resonate with the feeling of like I felt connected growing up, but I also felt like it somehow seemed like a lie. Like it mm. didn't seem quite right. Like something like something was mm-hmm. something was wrong and uh, you know, I think now I can put words to it much more easily, but going through mm. it I you know, I was just kind of a happy kid growing up, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it was kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sensitive. I can cry easily. I can mm-hmm. grew up with four sisters, no brothers. So I <laughs> yeah. had all these, you know, mm-hmm. more maybe. Mm-hmm. But point is, yeah, I can relate to that, to the mm. feeling of not being disconnected, but alone within a lot of people, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I share this story and I have shared this story, you know, with many people it's such a privilege to share this story because i i think we all have these good teachers right like there's a reason why rex is here <laughs> doing this podcast there's a reason why i'm here as sparrow um we've had good teachers that have been kind enough to be patient with us and share their stories this is a a, a story from my life where i i happen to have like kind of my my first initial good teachers in this work. This was when I was 22, 21 or 22. I'd gotten um, an internship right out of undergrad um, at a homeless shelter in Chicago through an organization called Breakthrough Urban Ministries. Really, really beautiful. Um, 
my my internship was working with youth that at that point um there were still the projects so this is before the projects were were um were shut down and really enjoyed that when my internship was up i wanted to stay on um and i asked at at this particular women's shelter you know if there were any particular jobs that were available cuz i wanted to stay and work for the organization there were no uh jobs available except for the janitor position um and so i decided to stay and well i was lucky enough that they gave me the janitor position cuz i didn't know anything about cleaning um so you can imagine this is um 40 women staying in this particular shelter uh so nine toilets a lot happening during the day in this particular congregate shelter um and a 21 20 22 year old um girl that i was um was now in charge of the facilities like I'd gone from being like a quote unquote case manager or someone that was in kind of an over and above relationship with youth that were coming to the sh- the shelter during the day it was a drop in. Um, but I was also there during the day and didn't get to encounter the women very much. Or when I tried to, I, I just couldn't build much relationship or rapport. What would happen when I started to clean alongside them is, of course, inevitably, they started to share with me. So months, you know, I don't remember, you know, what time, I don't recall how many months it had been that I was cleaning alongside them, where I started to notice a pattern of a bus that would pull up in front of the shelter. All these people would get out of the bus and they would come behind in the kitchen and start making food. And it was, you know, the crew that was volunteered from like a church out in the suburbs that would drive in a lot of times I would see like people flirting with one another because it was like a a singles group that would come and prepare the food and I I I just noticed God like all these people are coming in we're cleaning this this building I'm talking to all these women and one of them looked at me one day and they just said do you have any idea what it feels like to see people being bussed in every day to make food for you. I grew up in this city, in this like square block radius, my whole life. Never once have I been asked to be a part of something. Never once have I been asked to like offer myself to volunteer on behalf of my community. Like, Do you have any idea what that feels like? Yeah. And that was it for me. That changed, I mean, that changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah, because you saw the, the separation alone. I saw, like, again, like, they are my good teachers. Like, I am so grateful to those women for sharing that because the rest of my life has been truly a direct response to that moment in time. That's beautiful, honestly. I don't think people uh, see that. Right. Like in kind of any way, like it's very hard to always also be on the receiving end, like never like just to have people come and give and not have something to give back or to be included on that end of it. That's to never be told that you're needed in this world for this world. Yeah, I think it's one of the greatest poverties of all. Yeah, I think it's central to some of the kind of stepping stones for people to get involved like what are those little first feelings like mm. how, how do i how do i like get off of my path to help someone that's struggling with theirs like mm-hmm. what does that look like how do i wake up one day and decide to do that and mm-hmm. i think we mm-hmm. all need those little moments of those little kind of 
pearls of wisdom like that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you kept working there. I did. I worked there, um, and I would have stayed there um, a lot longer. But my my um, at that point in my life, um, my parents were living back in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and um, I got a call that my dad was sick and and dying. So I. Um, left Chicago and moved back to be with my, um, my dad as he was passing away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was able to, to spend the next, um, it was about 11 months, uh, caring for my father and, um, saying the long goodbye. Yeah. So, um, sorry. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I am too. Did you know yet what you wanted to be doing in life at that point? Mm. Was that a was that eleven month also a reflection time for you? Totally was. Yeah, that was a real time of. Uh, I mean, you know, again being twenty two, and so many of my friends were out living their life, and mine was really different at that point, right? Like I was very much attuned and aware again of like the fleeingness of this life. You know, the power of a moment. Uh, things really become clear when you're having to say goodbye to someone you love. At uh, you know, I, I'm certainly not. I wasn't like so so young, but I was pretty. Young. I was I was pretty young, you know, yeah. and I was able to be really attuned in that season. And I think so much of that is because I had just come from working in a women's shelter where. The women, again, were kind enough to share their struggle with me and their story and then to go back and be alongside my dad as he was dying. Um, I it was in a thin place, right? Um, it was a thin yeah, place were, for me. And, and I was raw. And I was able um, to, in, in those moments, take what my good teachers at the shelter had had shown me and um, reflect on my time working at the shelter. Um, and it was during that time that I really did get a vision for um, a nonprofit coffee shop. It was at that time that I had a connection here with um, a local church that wanted to um, do church a little bit differently. And I had shared with them this vision I had for a nonprofit coffee shop. And they really loved it. Tell us the name. Uh, the Green Bean Coffee House. So the first obvious question is, like, why a non-profit mm-hmm. coffee house? Mm-hmm. Like, what, tell us what's different about yeah. this. Like, why isn't it just a mm-hmm. for-profit coffee mm-hmm. spot? You know, for me, my line of thinking was there are no third places, right? Like, churches are not that place for folks. Like, mm-hmm. coffee shops aren't totally that place for folks because they're not always welcoming to folks that are that are sleeping rough that are that are unhoused but they could be yep um and i think the other part of it was that i wanted to give individuals a way to to be a part of something so we had our local our tip jar supported local and global nonprofits so anyone who walked in we had a we had a nonprofit board, like a, a nonprofit of the month, they could come in and they could learn about different That's nonprofits awesome. <laughs> that were local and global, right? And anyone could come in. So Joel, who I knew who slept outside, or Robert, who slept on our back porch, they could come in and they could give 
a penny, five cents. They could learn about something, a narrative that was greater than themselves. And also, they could help clean the space. They could be a part of the space. Yeah. And they could stay in the space. So it was an all-inclusive and space. It was an all-inclusive space. So we didn't we didn't yeah. make chairs that were uncomfortable. You know, we didn't we didn't have uh, like a certain uh, number that we needed to reach on a day to day basis. Uh, we we wanted folks to come yeah. and feel a part of something, and that was the green bean. And were you working there every day? Oh yes, uh, yes. probably probably more. Oh my <laughs> goodness, Rex. Yes, yes, it was. It was such a beautiful, beautiful season of life. Yeah. Um, it was a beautiful, hard season of life. But um, you know, we we had many programs that were birthed out of the green bean again accessible to all people yeah people really cared for one another it was a beautiful fabric of care that happened within those four walls yeah i imagine but i want to hear you talk about it yeah the house community and the unhoused community right like that's mm -hmm. where i think that's where the special sauce is that like, is the where mix, the special sauce like is. where all the mixing happens and where yes. all the learning and the growth mm -hmm. for both right both communities are, 100% or did you see that taking place yes. in the green bean and that's why it was created yeah that was totally why it was created yeah was to try to to figure out a leveled out space where folks from all walks of life could come yeah. and live as though we belong to one another and it takes a lot of of artistry to create a space like that and 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 tend to a space like yeah. that and courage of course yeah so tell me about these early thoughts for the Aurora Commons. And I got to say, the Aurora Commons, um, I think, started about the same time I started facing homelessness. Mm -hmm. And so about a year or so later, I started hearing cross-pollinating things. Like I'd, I'd hear about Aurora Commons. I go, oh, mm -hmm. right? Like it felt like we were um, Kindred separated at birth yeah, or something, absolutely. right? It just felt like it was the same kind of feelings were, yeah. were being put out into the world. And mm -hmm. so... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've always held this really beautiful place in my heart for Aurora Commons and the work that you guys mm. did do and are still doing there. Oh, yeah. So, but tell me, like, the early birthing of mm. of the commons. I mean, I wish that, you know, a whole chorus of people could be here, right? Like, you're getting one note in the chorus from me. There are so many people that were a part of birthing the Aurora Commons. And that's what makes it so beautiful, right? Yeah. Like, it was... It was birthed in community, and it was birthed out of a, a desire to share life with our neighbors um, that are experiencing homelessness. And Aurora is a tough spot. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, I mean yeah. let me back up. All cities are tough spots for the homeless, right? Yeah. But Aurora is, yeah. Aurora is a particularly difficult spot. Did you choose that mm -hmm. spot particularly for a reason? Was there... Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's where we were all living as a community. So, um, as I mentioned, the Green Beam was in Greenwood, which Greenwood, um, you know, is right next to Aurora Avenue, North Aurora. Um, the Aurora Commons physical space is at 90th in Aurora. The Green Beam was at 86th in Greenwood. Yep. So all of us that helped to create the Aurora Commons all lived within like a block or two radius of Aurora Avenue and had for 15 plus years at that point. I see. The Aurora Commons uh, started, you know, many years before we had a brick-and-mortar building. So the original start um, to the Aurora Commons and kind of the movement of the loving community uh, of Awake Church uh, started spending their time with intention at the motels on Aurora. 
And was that just like hanging out in the lobby or going into rooms and saying, hey, and sitting, do you want to chat or? A little bit of both. But what's really beautiful, Rex, is that um, my beloved sister, Karen, who's the, one of the co-founders of the Aurora Commons, she started back in 2008, 2009, simply taking bouquets of flowers hmm. to the motel managers on Aurora Avenue between 85th and 100th. Yep. So she just started by bringing flowers and saying hi with the deep acknowledgement that we know that those people that were running the motels, all that was happening in the motels, like those were precious people that were very isolated. They were in and out of homelessness, right? So just being present, bringing beauty. I know you of all people know how important beauty is and the lack of beauty that our friends who have to sleep outside have they don't have much access to beauty so to lead with beauty was always at the forefront of um i don't want to call it a movement um because it's not shouldn't be a movement i look forward to the day where it's no longer called a movement or radical hospitality but it's just simply loving your neighbor um so karen started by bringing flowers then we started doing uh barbecues that we would host in um the parking lots of the hotels Folks from all walks of life would come together and share meals. And then my husband and I had moved directly behind what is now the brick and mortar Aurora Commons on 90th and Aurora. Mm. So it was right next to what is the Oak Tree Motel yep. on Nesbitt Avenue. Okay. So Aurora Commons is here on Aurora. Yep. Big parking lot. Yep, with a little house in the a back. A little house in the back. Yep. My husband and I lived there. Oh, wow. And so there's two houses. There's one house in the back. There's one right next to it. And then there's an Oak Tree Motel, okay? Jade Chinese Restaurant, Aurora Commons. We were not Aurora Commons yet. We had a little house here. And that house, it was a fourplex, happened to have a yard. So rare, right, to have a green space, like a green, like a yard. Yeah. We said, oh, let's do a garden. Let's do a neighborhood garden. So... Um, myself and Karen and Ben and all the founders of Aurora Commons and our beloved community that were gathering and trying to be church together. We started doing a neighborhood garden in our backyard. So then, next thing you know, of course, right, we have a whole community of folks digging their hands in the dirt, creating this space. And then we started doing neighborhood barbecues. So we went from doing them in the parking lot yeah. to in my backyard. I'm not kidding. We would have 50 to 100 individuals in our backyard every Wednesday for two summers. We did that. That's beautiful. And it was the most mm. beautiful thing. And again, I look forward to the day where I don't have people coming to the backyard or people coming and saying, oh, this is radical hospitality. It's not. Yeah. I don't. It's not. Yeah. Like, well, my, my brain went, when you were finishing up that little portion of the story, my brain said, can you imagine if that was happening around the whole city all right? the time, right? Like if that's yeah. kind of what we were yeah. all just making normal. Yeah. It's right? just a little lived out expression of, uh, I mean, just the fabric of love, like how better we are to be together in that and create together. And so that what happened is, is, is every year it would start to rain in the fall and we would miss being with one another. Mm. So we started our first Aurora Commons program in my house. Um, it was a women's breakfast. And so my neighbors that sleeped out in their RVs and out in their tents, because we had a lot of people sleeping on Nesbitt at that time, 
they would come over and we would create and make breakfast together, sharing a meal together. Um, that was our first women's breakfast. And then we saw the Aurora, the building yep. come up for lease. We said, what if we took what we've been doing hmm. and put four walls around it and did it all the time? Yeah. So, um, so a wake moved into the building as well. Mm -hmm. So you kind of were doing two things. Mm -hmm. You were beginnings yep. of Aurora Commons mm -hmm. right alongside Awake. That's right. And yeah. probably yeah. cross yeah, awake, filtering was Awake birthed all of this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, we like to say it was Awake was kind of the goose that hatched the egg of Aurora Commons and the egg got way too big. <laughs> the goose had to get yeah. off, you know. Um, That's funny. But we totally renovated that whole space. Yeah. Rex, all by ourselves, with our own hands, in community. Yeah. Um, That's beautiful. Yeah. That's, uh, I could see you pulling, any person pulling the energy from that your entire life long, having that experience, mm -hmm. honestly. To tie it back to my good teachers from, from the women's shelter in Chicago. When we started the Aurora Commons, when we designed the space and made it, the only thing we knew and the only thing we started off with was having a shared kitchen. So we wanted the kitchen to be accessible to everyone. So we would stock the kitchen with food, but people would come in, and they'd get to open the fridge, and they'd get to make their own food. Mm. People on the street. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was the only thing we started with, Rex. Yeah. We had no programs. We had nothing. Yeah. Just a neighborhood living room yeah. where folks can come in, and they get to choose get what they the want to create with their own hands. Yeah. No us serving them. Yeah. You walk in, you don't know who's working, who's not working. And that's not a simple thing, right? It's like being a parent. Your kids shouldn't know how hard you work. They shouldn't know how hard you work yeah. to make their life beautiful and flourishing. That's a really profoundly beautiful beginnings. Mm -hmm. I, I think about the early phases of facing homelessness in my architecture office. It wasn't facing homelessness yet, right? Mm -hmm. But one of the most beautiful things is that happened is that uh, people were coming into my architecture office to use the bathroom, get coffee, peanut butter, whatever, right? Or sit and just read in the, in the lobby mm -hmm. there. And they weren't coming into a social service place. Mm -hmm. They were coming into an architect's office. Mm -hmm. And that little tiny distinction to the people coming in, they mm -hmm. could walk in standing mm -hmm. up straight. They weren't, they weren't right. coming in broken. Right. Like, oh, I'm broken and I need your help. They were just coming in to mix and be, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, that wasn't designed. I wish I could, you know, say, oh, that was some brainchild idea. It wasn't until later that I that realized, you realized yeah. oh, wow, that is what's working yeah. here. And, and this is where I was musing about, like, all these beautiful beginnings for all the things that people turn into nonprofits is then they have, then they grow, and it's and they have to because you and I know they, a thing about that. They have yeah. to because they want to do more of the beautiful that they're doing. Yeah, that's and with right. it, they need structure, they need guidelines and rules, and slowly it starts becoming something that's not as approachable. And it's not a criticism on any of the nonprofits. No. Uh, certainly, it's not a criticism of facing homelessness and how it's grown. Yeah, but it's just a reality. Nor right? were comments. Yeah, but same. Yeah. It's why it needs to keep being reborn and reborn because that's right. that, for yeah. me at least, yeah. the beautiful, the really human beautiful moments are when 
a stranger does something kind and loving for another stranger mm-hmm. and it just becomes mm-hmm. this little beautiful thing mm-hmm. and other people join and mm-hmm. they want to also be part of it and before it gets legs <laughs> i guess i don't know there's a sense where like i picture a breath that needs to be nourished across all of our social services at this particular point in time mm. they're very malnourished of soul mm. and again understandably so yeah people are there ever since covid there's and prior to that even no one has a margin yeah. to be imaginative, to be creative, and they deserve it. Yeah. They deserve that from us. Yeah, they do. One of the things that shocked me when I started early on, I got calls from case managers that said, you're getting too close to the people you're serving. Mm. I said, like, that's the whole point. Yeah. And they said, that's, you're, you're setting yourself up for... Mm-hmm disappointing and hurting mm-hmm. people that are vulnerable and i it crossed it, it went against my my kind of inner feelings about like what yeah. was missing is that mm-hmm. we actually need to get closer we need instead of pushing away we need to get closer mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i don't even begin to think i have the answers on how that works when it scales but i just know person to person yeah it it's there's too much separation and people feel that that are extremely vulnerable and extremely hurting yeah. mm-hmm they need a hug. They need someone to mm-hmm. listen. They need someone to be yeah. really close to them. Yeah, absolutely. And where are the spaces where they have the lived out, they have the privilege of the lived out experience of being in relationship, of, of naming themselves? I mean, I think one of the main things I think about a lot, Rex, is, is and I thought about, thought about this a lot at the Commons, that was a big part of why we set it up in the way that we did with the neighborhood living room feel, the kitchen, the shared kitchen was that when you go to social services, quite often they have a list of ways that they want you to name yourself. Mm. Where are the places where they can where they can come up with their own name? You, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like rather than checking a box of like, oh, yeah. I slept here last night or I'm this or I'm that. Yeah. Like where can they go where they can live out a new name, yeah. a new possibility. It's so important yeah. to create those spaces where they don't have to come in and say they're one thing or another. Yeah, they can just be. They can just be. That's a lot of work on our part, though. Yeah. It, it, it takes more work to create a space like that than to create a space that's full of a bunch of rules. And again, I'm with you. And I'm boxes not, to check. And boxes to check. Now, it, there's nothing easy about that. And you're right. It's not super scalable. But there can also be people in this world that are committed to a way of seeing, a way of restoring in, that I think we, we need to put, we need to put uh, more belief, more weight be- behind these kinds of social movements that are kind of uh, a special assist to our social services. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. I mean, I've, it, often I will, I, when I get into these types of conversations, which I'm grateful for, um, is that I get to a point where I, you know, we're working in, in this arena and we're, and you know, we're up against this and these people over here are doing that. And there comes a point where I almost, I almost want to say, no matter how hard are you going to push or try to change within this arena, it just keeps going around and around, and it's almost like we need to go to another arena. Like, mm. and, I, and by that I mean, mm. 
You know, I, I look at all of the services that are being provided. It's not like there, are, there isn't effort going on. There's a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. But I feel like what's, what's missing in a big part is community where it bec- it's kind of a cultural thing. Like, like we all take part in the Aurora Commons living room. Mm-hmm. Like not mm-hmm. physically where Aurora mm-hmm. Commons is, but mm-hmm. we all have that space. We yeah. all, and I think at that point, it changes overnight, right? Yeah. Like it's a cultural... Yeah. shift and i that that cultural shift is huge it is and almost mm-hmm. feels like it needs to be another arena like i look at what we the way we do things now mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. wow how do we get there from where we are imagining it in this mm-hmm. in this box it's like mm-hmm. i want to go over here and mm-hmm. i don't know what i don't know what that means other than yeah. maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's an awareness of wow how how much of a task it is because hmm. I don't believe we're going to get there unless we all kind of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. see each other in the way that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I I think of a couple things when you say that is um, Joanna Macy, who um, has done a lot of work in, uh, in translating Rainier Maria Rilke's poetry, she calls it deep time work. And I think about that a lot. Who are the people out here that are telling, just in Seattle, we'll just say Seattle, that are telling a new story? Hmm. Who is pointing us in the direction of a new North Star. Yeah. We don't, we don't. What is that? What North is star? the new story? What, it, yeah, yeah, and I think that's extremely important. We don't important even know work. the direction because we don't right. even know what the star is. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's... No, exactly. And so I think that's why it's so important the work that you're doing, Rex, and the work that I hope that Sacred Streets can be a part of is it's building a bridge across otherness. How can we turn and face one another? Yeah. It's no simple task to tell a new story. But a new story is exactly what needs to be told. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly what needs to be told. Yeah. Do you think we all feel that? Do you think we're just to tell that story? Do you think we're all, are we all lined up waiting for that? It's just that a lot of folks don't know how to take that first step. But are we, mm. are we primed for it? You know mm. how like when an idea burrs, everybody goes, oh my God, that's it mm. right there. Do you think we're, mm. we're ready for it? Mm. Miss, no, my yeah, mystic friend. I know, I know. Uh, yeah, I do, I do. I think the time is now. I really do. I feel that in my bones. I'm closing my eyes, listeners. <laughs> I'm closing my eyes. I feel it deep in my bones. But, but it's so particular, right? Like, like it, it. First of all, the fact is, there is a very like lived out decompensation of precious people that's happening within our city right now, and that lived out decompensation of our unhoused neighbors. It's, it's a reflection of, of our inability on so many levels as an entire society to have nuanced conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just true. Yeah. We, it's so refreshing when you find those conversations. Right. It's, they're so they're rare. Like what we need is a group of people again, committed to the belief that people can change both in thought and theory like i like people need to believe that they can have conversations with people that are different than them where we can create something together we can change and we can be open to change Mm, i love that there's not a lot of humans that i come across in this very, like, for, for speaking so much against being a binary society, I've never experienced more of a binary society. 
the ins and outs, the Republican, the Democrat, yeah. the liberal, the not this liberal, that. this or that. Like, yeah. like, where are the people that are building a bridge? Yeah. We need more build like bridge builders, Rex. Like I truly believe that with my whole heart. And the people that are suffering the most are the folks that we're seeing, the folks that are sleeping outside. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're suffering emotionally and physically, but I would I would say too, people living inside suffer from what you're talking 100%. about. One hundred percent. You know, that's yeah. the loneliness that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about um Sacred Streets. Sacred Streets is is a commitment to <laughs> building a bridge across otherness. Um and that is a commitment to like story storytelling in a way that I think uh, I like to call it like the phenomenology of the other. So kind of taking the experiences alongside folks that I've known for 20 years um, that have been sleeping, that have had to sleep outside, that are continuing to sleep outside. It's, it's, it's me sharing their story in a way that doesn't um, deduce it to reason, but really is outside of reason. So I want folks to... And outside of reason, I'm guessing you mean it's just it resides in emotion? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's my hope, at least. Yeah. And how are you, how are you wanting to tell these stories? Mm. I mean, I think it goes back to, like, just the way that I was created at birth, and that's just being a mystic, like, just mystical encounters with the other... So I think, you know, for me, like so much of my life alongside my neighbors who are experiencing homelessness has been lived out in a very particular ecosystem. And that's on Aurora Avenue. And so to highlight that particular place, and the particular precious people by sharing their stories, um, is one good medicine for me. I have to get these stories out of my body. Yeah. They're seeping out of me. Um, I have to memorialize the folks that I've lost, which is far too many. I have to make meaning out of their lives. And I hope that the ways that I steward their stories honors them and awakens the reader and the people to their own need. <laughs> it, it resonates with me that often when we hear these stories or however they shape, whether they're written or they're photos or they're videos, um, they end up opening something within yourself that actually is very telling mm -hmm. to what you need in your own mm -hmm. life. Uh, mm -hmm. I, this has never sounded quite right, but I've, 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 I haven't found the right words to put it into. But I've, I've felt like the homeless uh, stories that you hear are gifts to the housed mm -hmm. to actually self-examine. Mm -hmm. like, oh, absolutely! You know, if, in lots of ways. Like if you turn away from it, then you can ask yourself, okay, why am I turning away? What's it? What's within me mm -hmm. that is has me turning away from this story? Mm -hmm. Or, right. or if I come closer to it, what is it in me? And it's mm -hmm. a, it's an invitation to self examination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, in both of those ex mm -hmm. uh, you know experiences, yeah. coming closer or moving away. Yeah, 
how are you doing this though? How are you yeah. are you doing it in writing? Or are you doing it in Yeah, in in writing. Yeah, so I'm 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 writing a lot. And when I'm able to, I'm I'm sharing that with with folks that want to read it. Um real changes. I've been grateful for them and I feel the most honored when they share my stories. Um, yeah, so they've been able to share a number of my my articles, and I'll continue to to share in that way. Um, but um, you know, uh, Sacred Streets also has been um, in uh, community with uh, mental health chaplaincy. And, and the hope is to continue um, to work with faith communities. In equipping them with this companionship training, yeah. um, because we know, I, I know you know, and I know many people who are listening and who are committed to this work, this good hard work, know that that soul care is a really, really crucial part of this work. We really want to create a, a big pool of individuals that are trained in accompaniment, that are trained in soul care. That can start partnering with these social services to go in and care for the beloved humans that are living, you know, at the tiny house villages, at our permanent supportive housing, and also care for the staff that are hurting and burnt out and not equipped well. I think, you know, one thing I'm really aware of, Rex, and, and, and you may not be aware of, other people may not be aware of, is that just even in this last year, there's been a 30% increase in overdose fatalities within our permanent supportive housing units, folks are getting indoors. We've seen this a long time. Mm-hmm. They're closing their doors and they're dying yeah. because they're lonely. They're isolated. They have no sense of community. We need to create a whole community of people that are committed to being in relationship with our precious friends that are both sleeping outside and also transitioning into homes, which can often be isolating, the most isolating experience of yeah. all because they don't have that lived out community on the street, yep. that lived out meaning making for better or worse where everybody has a job, yeah. everybody has a hustle. Yep. So we as a community need to come around and for way lack of a better word, adopt these organizations. Um, and so that's something that we're working with mental health chaplaincy on is, is doing these trainings to equip House neighbors to come alongside our unhoused neighbors on the street and in that crucial time of transition where all of a sudden, again, they have that door. Yeah. Yeah, they've left. And they don't have anyone knocking on it. Yeah, albeit a difficult and often dysfunctional community. Yep. They still had a community on the street. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. Now they're off. Now Now they've moved five miles away into a building on the fourth floor. Yep. And they're separated. Yep, yep. So Sacred Streets is um, that's one of our main our main um, our goals, yeah. um, and then and then the other is a deep commitment to social artistry. Okay, I wish I had my notes in front of me. I'm sorry, Jean Houston. Not that she's really going to hear this, but um, she created uh, the the field of social artistry, and it's essentially that you approach social dilemmas as an artist would. <laughs> it's it's quite simple, really, yeah. but. Um, with the precision of an artist. Yeah. With with the creativity of an artist. The openness. The openness of an artist. Yeah. Um and and that's been really helpful for me in every conversation. In every attempt that we have to like quote unquote solve homelessness or come up with with um 
particular models of care. It's to come at it with through the lens of an artist and, and, and to be committed to that mm. um, in every conversation I have, along with individuals that are trying to come up with their own models of care. How do we care for the precious other who's sleeping rough, um, you know, uh, to bring... To help, to help them reimagine, yeah. to help them be imaginative, yeah. not just stick with, um, you know, a transactional model of care, yeah. um, but to really um, deprofessionalize. Yeah, deprofessionalize, absolutely. That was something that we used to say at Facing Homelessness was mm. that you didn't have to know the answer to begin, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I think that is a very artist point of view totally yeah you actually rely on the creative design process absolutely like i'm going to start i'm going to collect information and we're going to discover the solution yeah as we go yeah it's a co-creation yeah you talked a little bit about soul care Mm -hmm. like what are some foundational Mm. cornerstones of soul care like Mm. just that you could peel off the top of your head what does that look like yeah to sparrow i think soul care is is it is a, a deep a deep reverence for the other uh, approaching the other as a mystery, as not something to be to be solved, not something to be solved, but something to be like someone to be in awe of. Um, I think that you know, even though I'm talking about it now with my eyes closed. Like there's a there's a sense where it's like it's it's the hand on the heart, right? Like it's it's asking and being like attentive to kind of the unmeasurable of the precious human in front of you. So it's a commitment to the beauty, the encounter. I think of when you were talking earlier, uh, when we first started about, you know, feeling that we all feel lonely and that you were, it wasn't quite fitting for you as you were growing up. You were loved, you were surrounded by people. I feel like I'm always looking for that connection. You also said this earlier, which really resonated with me, is that, uh, I can't remember your exact words, but it was about unhidden uh, beauty or openness that people on the street seem to have. Like mm-hmm. there's an authenticity there that that is, and this is nothing negative against people living inside, but there is something mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. genuinely, beautifully authentic in people outside mm-hmm. that for whatever reason, opens me more that's right uh, and i uh mm-hmm. i think your discussion about soul care um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's a very good thing for everybody i think it to is. reflect on like, mm-hmm. like where like am i taking mm-hmm. part in that journey you know? yeah and i think there's also something there's a sense that feels really honoring to me rex because i i think for me when i when i think about when I think about soul care, when I think about being a soulful human, when I think about, you know, animating soul, being present to the precious other who's experiencing homelessness, there's a sense where I, I feel like I have to risk more. And they're worthy of my risk. Do you know, I, I, yeah. I guess the way, the way that I want to say it is like, I think they're, like we have such a, uh, we've been trained, right? We've been trained how to volunteer. We've been trained that there's certain things that we have to do, right? Or we sign up to volunteer and we have a job when we go volunteer. There's something very wildernessly and wild about soul care. Yep. There's no book that you can pick up. Yeah. You're truly yeah. just in the face of the other. Yep. And there's a sense where it requires something of me, where I can make a fool of myself. 
Yeah. And they're worthy of or that. Or I can get hurt. Or, or I can, can get hurt parents. because they can tell me, don't touch me. Yeah. Or don't, or no, yeah. bitch. I didn't yeah. mean that. Like, yeah. fair. Like, yeah. there's something like. And then I've got to deal with that. And then I've got to deal with that. Yeah. And I've got to, like, there's, some, there's something in that that feels so honoring. God, thank you for putting that into words for me. I feel exactly the same way. I've wondered a lot about, uh, you know, we started this Just Say Hello campaign, right? Mm -hmm. And I wondered why is that so difficult for a lot of people? And I think it's because most of the uh, back and forth that we have in society are fairly scripted. Mm -hmm. Hey, how's it going? It's going mm -hmm. good. How was the mm -hmm. weekend? Mm -hmm. How about those Mariners, huh? Mm -hmm. You know, there are all these little bits and pieces that you can meet somebody in the elevator or walking up the steps or whatever, and they're pretty prescribed exchanges and nothing in those exchanges are going to challenge you mm -hmm. but if you say hello to somebody that's struggling now the guardrails are off that's right anything can come back mm -hmm. and you've got to now actually kind of look inside and say hmm how do i feel about that mm -hmm. it's not just in my head it's like i gotta really i gotta actually check in on this that's right and that's i think that's a, a more difficult and more rewarding i agree journey um yeah totally i mean i think that you know, one of the things that I feel really, <laughs> it's always, again, hard to talk about, but I feel really proud of us at Aurora Commons and continue to feel proud of how this is being lived out at the Aurora Commons without me there even, is that we show up, like we respond. Yeah. Like I think we've, we're trained to, to like, I mean, hearkening back to kind of what you said earlier, like case managers or other people tell us not to get too close. There's something so honoring when you weep and wail, mm -hmm. when someone relapses, I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with it because I know you. I know you. I've known you for five years. Yeah, I love you. And I love you. Yeah. Okay. You are, um, you're a unique person. I'm going to just say it. And I, I know I'm not the first person to tell you that. Like, uh, just the way that you care from your heart and the way that you want to lean into and see the issue of people struggling on the streets. That's, that's beautiful and unique and um, you have a gift, let's just say, for it. Um, but that's not everybody, mm -hmm. right? But I also wonder about the people listening to this who kind of don't bring that mindset and what are those, what are those starter kit entry points for people to, um, you know, begin that journey of their, their soul artistry or their soul caring. Mm -hmm. Um, do you have mm -hmm. insights into that? Mm. And, and I know you're a teacher as well. Like this mm. is part, right. This is part of your sacred streets is, is, um, is helping educate people yeah. how to step forward. So much of the work is work that we just, we need to do together as a community. I think that I often say that we wouldn't have so many folks, so many precious folks that are sleeping outside if we were in each other's business more in our neighborhoods. So get closer. Get closer to your neighbor. Yeah. And I don't mean your unhoused neighbor. I mean, we don't even notice. Like, we don't even know our neighbors. Like, if we yeah. were in each other's business, we would know when a kiddo, kiddo's not safe at home. We would know when someone's hurting. Yeah. It's those people that often end up outside. 
We gotta get in each other's business more. The question remains, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what is missing in our culture mm-hmm. that is keeping mm-hmm. us from doing that? Like, mm-hmm. why are we not doing that? What are we so afraid of? What? Yeah. Well, I think in large part, honestly, like, it's uh, our white, hmm. heteronormative culture. We don't have a shared communal story. Hmm. I mean, if you look at just even, like, the invention of harm reduction movement, that came out of black communities during the crack epidemic. They care for one another. There's a communal need for one another. Mm. We don't have a shared need for one another. So I think... So we're just fragmenting. We're fragmented. We don't have a shared need for one another. If you also look, I I think I talk to a lot of, of white women about this, myself included, there's so many ways that we look in the mirror and all we see is our own face. I see my lines across my face. And I'm told over and over again that these are the ointments or the treatments that I have to use to keep myself from aging. I'm told that so often that I can't even look past my own face in the mirror anymore. I have to stop yeah. <laughs> and I have to be intentional about not wanting quick fixes to my own pain, to my own suffering, to my own desire to not die someday. When I'm really intentional about that, then I see the person in front of me, and I see that I need them. There is a discipline that we have to be committed to. We have to be disciplined people. Yeah. It takes a lot of work to look past our own face in the mirror and see the precious other, to live as though we belong to one another, to live as though we need one another when everything in our cultural narrative is telling us the other. Yeah. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you for talking with me. You are beloved. The issue of homelessness is complex and overwhelming for everyone. So much so that many of us turn away from the moments where and when it comes closest to us. In those moments, though, there is an opportunity. An opportunity to look into the eyes of someone struggling, to hear their voice, to feel some of their pain. And in that moment, an opportunity to shift homelessness from how it impacts you to how it is impacting this person in front of you. You Know Me Now is produced, written, and edited by Tomas Bernatsky and me, Rex Holbein. We would like to give a heartfelt thank you to Sparrow for taking the time to speak with us. You Know Me Now has a Facebook and Instagram page where you can join in on the conversation. We also have a website at www.youknowmenow.com where you can see photos of Sparrow and the other programs that we host, such as photojournal stories, Artist Spotlight, and our podcast. Thanks as always for listening.